0: There is a war between the rich and poor A war between
1: the man and the woman There is a war between the ones who say there is a war And the ones who say that there isn't
0: Why don't you come on back to the war That's right, get in it
1: Welcome everybody. This is Michael P Elias alongside Stanley Aronowitz and Peter Bratzis for a new podcast series, Prosperity Marxism, brought to you by the Institute for the Radical Imagination. This series will be uh, on a regular basis. We're going to pick a theme that is relevant to both the history of uh, class struggle uh, Marx and Marxism and all relevant topics, uh, that we're facing today and, uh, in this, uh, midst of maybe, uh, the uh, last crisis of civilization to put it in, uh, pejorative terms. But, um, anyway, we're, um, today going to discuss, uh, the question of labor, uh, particularly, uh, since we have with us, uh, Stanley, who'll be a regular participant on this, uh, podcast, who's, uh, Extremely well known uh, as the author of False Promises, The Shaping of the American Working Class, which was published in 1973, which has sold close to 100,000 copies up to date, or not that many. No, only about 65,000. Only 65,000. Okay, well, well, after this podcast, maybe we'll get to the 100,000. So, uh, anyway. <laughs> it's um, still in print. Yeah, yes, exactly. And who has addressed the labor question in all of his. Uh, uh, both uh, scholarly and very militant a uh, uh, life um, uh, as a as a labor activist. Um, other two books which are of central importance, I think, theoretically to uh, Stanley as a labor intellectual are, of course, um, Science Is Power. And most people don't read the book as a book of <laughs> on labor, but I do, in the reflection of. Labor and science, and you know the relationship to power, and of course the jobless future. Co-author with Bill DeFazio, Peter is the author of Everyday Life in the State, in which you know he raises very good questions about identity and the state. Um, uh, maybe you can say a little bit about that book and its relationship to um, you know our topic today,
0: or or really to class class identity. Yeah, no. it's, it's not about the labor question and yeah, and the no, narrow sense, but, it, yeah. but it is yeah. about the primacy right. of uh everyday life right on how any uh, uh, form of social change and every macro political and economic creation is founded on everyday routines and rituals and practices right
1: so that's pretty much where we're going to go today um um, Peter mentions everyday life. We're certainly all three of us inspired by the work of Henri Lefebvre, and in my case, maybe also by uh, more so by uh, martin heidegger's work on the everyday and anxiety, which was really not the labor question back in, in the day for Heidegger, but uh, but you could rethink Heidegger in a left uh, capacity, which I think Lefebvre did in an original sense. But I, I'd like to begin this, first of all, with the distinction that we get in Marx in 1844, which uh, Hannah Arendt does not uh, ascribe to Marx and kind of takes up her own, as between the laboring animal, right, and the working person, right, or the working human, and maybe well, we she can... she thought yeah, yeah,
2: that yeah. people who worked in factories in unskilled and semi-skilled jobs, in other words, what was once known as the mass worker, were engaged in animal activity because she made a distinction between humans and animals, but you only began to become a human when you did work that required thought. Namely, work of a skilled worker and a professional. So most people have, have been stalled at the primate level. Right. Uh, it was a thesis which, to a large extent, still obtains today. Such
1: so we get language like working stiff, working slave slave labor, that she wow. she thought that uh, in some ways the animal labor was really like being a slave. She, wow. she made this she, r- she, really back to ancient society. Yes, you have yes. to be very but, uh, careful sure. yes.
2: in separating Hannah Arendt from Marx yes. because the concept of the wage slave is a Marx right. concept. Right. And she picked it up and applied it very, very widely to labor as such, and
1: um, or in a broader context, she historic, she tried to do it in a meta historical way, yeah, back well, to ancient society. I mean, she well, she had this division that started, you know, with the slave as the animalistic, right, and also
0: the oikos in Aristotle, right, was part of. Yeah, I think this, in, in, this in the eighteen forty four manuscripts, yeah, right. the question is one between instinct and thinking because yes, because yes. the the right. argument is right. you know working is not particular to right. humans all right. animals work bees right. work right. And dogs work and right the question is are you doing it through instinct you're simply following your genetic right code as right. it were right or there's thinking involved right and the argument Marx makes there is that in capitalist societies what is human about us right that creative dimension to to uh, uh, working is made animalistic is taken away right through the factory regime through that and, technical and, division. And
2: this raises an interesting question. If you read Marx carefully, which hardly anybody does, <laughs> even when they study capital, uh, what you discover is that Marx really uh, has a position which, if you don't delve deeply enough, looks like a bourgeois uh, position. He really believes that the revolution begins, class revolution, which is the, uh, the communist or socialist revolution, begins with the formation of workplaces and everyday life, which are, to a large extent, based on wage slavery. He thought when the worker ceases to be a peasant and becomes a worker, that represents, on the one hand, in advance, because, the, because the, the money that they get for working ultimately is free, except that it's not free. It frees the worker to a certain extent, but on the other hand, The worker is living from paycheck to paycheck, which is what we have now. 80% in the United States of working families live paycheck to paycheck. They have no savings. They have no land, except perhaps a house that they share in ownership with the bank or the insurance company. So Marx was was a, a very... Sharp in his critique of property because he thought when the working class is deprived of productive property, property Mm -hmm. which uh, works in in the labor market, when workers are deprived of productive property, they have become wage slaves. Right. So
1: so a transition would be... uh, the, becoming conscious of that wage slavery or, uh, you know, that there would be this transitional move, movement through just this dual structure of the instinct to thinking on the way to thinking yeah, would require yeah. a kind of conscious moment mm-hmm. or a kind of making the labor unconscious conscious, right? And In that's, a why, I, labor, that's why
2: I titled conscious. my right. first book, right. False False promises, promises. the making of American working class consciousness, not the working class. Right. Because I wanted to signify the growth. The reason that in 1847 Marx and Engels wrote the manifesto of the Communist Manifesto was because they didn't think that economic crisis itself produced revolution— They thought the revolutionary possibility was in the transformation of the small producer, whether it be a farmer or a small artisan or a small business person, into a worker. And it's that transformation, not poverty, that produces change.
1: That loss of autonomy. Loss of autonomy, yes. Yes.
2: When the middle-class do-gooders talk about poverty, What they're doing is they're talking about a category which is really essentially a middle-class or petty bourgeois category. Mm -hmm. Because poverty now is uh, a phenomenon that uh, embraces large numbers of people who work full-time and make no living worthy of the name.
1: And this will be for a future podcast, but not to mention the psychic impoverishment that people are going through, which goes hand-in-hand with that.
2: And the psychic impoverishment of people who have professions. Yes, yes. Try the physician, try the social worker, try the scientist for
0: psychic impoverishment. I mean, to me, the interesting Hmm? uh, question is, how the labor question really underpins so many of the contemporary dilemmas climate change uh, 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 question of debt the question of education all these things and how really they are symptomatic of uh, problems or issues that fall within the confines
1: of the labor question. And hardly and ever no one, framed that way. Exactly. One. That's, that's exactly. the problem. Exactly. The real problem is, you know, people such as Aronowitz are not really used to frame this in a certain
2: way. But There's people like C. For White Mills, yes. for a brief period, okay. was able to say, without flinching, that this country, and Western Europe as well, were overdeveloped. And you could see how that concept of overdevelopment was picked up by climate scientists to signify why it is that we are in such a grave danger. Mm -hmm. Because development, to a certain extent, after a while, will destroy the environment, that is the living environment, the environment that is uh, adequate for life. And that's where we are now, Mm -hmm. and um, that's why it's uh, so clear that the Republicans, and most of the Democrats, in effect, uh, are really war criminals. And the reason they're war criminals is because they won't take the climate seriously enough to uh, face its consequences in the first place, a large portion of the chemical industry. In the second place, automobiles as consumer phenomena, rather than mass transit. And,
1: and where you began with Mills, the limit to growth. Right? That's right. Because we're in this overdeveloped uh, thing, and something that we mentioned uh, yesterday in a, 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 a small, uh, you know, gathering at the Historical Materialism conference. That really, the real possibility now is less is more. We have to think through that proposition, what that actually would mean in these overdeveloped, you know, first world or
2: whatever oh, nations so we, we want even,
0: to talk about. Even in the face of all these issues, yeah, uh, even in the face of all these issues of climate change and everything right. else, there is no call for, for example, a decrease in working hours. Right. There is no right. call for a reform of that sort. The reforms are either for more jobs, more jobs, <laughs> exactly, that's number one on the mm-hmm. list, or for uh, new industries being incubated that may have less, uh, a more positive impact on the environment. A new green, a new right. deal. the new green economy, new economy, the new deal. But the whole the framing yeah. is yes. e- ever increasing economic growth. Yes, yeah. and there's no uh, mm-hmm. idea of liberating people from the need to work, as we mentioned yesterday on the panel, right. even sleeping. Even someone having eight hours of sleep a day now becomes more and more and more of a luxury, and there's a whole industry. Get this, Stanley.
1: There's a whole industry. How to get to sleep now? People
2: have forgotten how to
1: sleep. One of the most
2: natural things. Eight hours of work. work, Right. Right. Eight hours of sleep. Right. And eight hours to do with what we will. Yes. The what we will has almost disappeared for most people.
1: Well, the recreational is now the working. (laughs) Right. Yes, look at us as teachers in a certain way. How many emails do we get for students? I mean, I know you're retired, but remember the emails about what do I have to do here? I'm having a late paper. I have this. What was the assignment? You know, constantly. But you're never not enough? working, and that always you're so, available. Yeah, so I turn off the computer at 8 o'clock, I've, I've learned. i <laughs> you know, just go two times
0: a day, <laughs> right? Well, beyond that, people are yeah. working two and three jobs. Two and three jobs, yeah, you you know, at least. And yeah. even some, you know, the, uh, the Middle Ages seem like... Paradise. Paradise compared <laughs> to Clark, the... Garden of Eden in the, the 12th regime. century, right?
2: There was a 90s joke mm-hmm. when Bill Clinton boasted that he had created three million jobs or his administration had created three million jobs. And the listener says, yeah, and I have three of them. And that is not
1: a joke. It's not a joke. Yeah, not a joke. As,
2: no, as, yeah. It's a description of what a large... Freud
0: at his best, family. family. <laughs> there you and go. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even when you're, t- you're retired, you have to work. You work as a <laughs> reader at Of course. at, at, at Walmart. Or, or McDonald's, McDonald's. Now, you see a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, people. Home
1: Depot. When I go to Home Depot in Montreal, there are two or three of them. Can I help you with something? Can yeah. I help you with that? Now they have people that have the computer maps. They'll show you on the map where you can go in these uh, huge uh, retail stores. Let's, let's go back uh, just for a second because I think this is fundamental to our discussion and fundamental to the future of research. Why do you think that, um, you know, uh, since you've written on this extensively, why do you think the labor question is always sort of denied in scholarship when you look at such things as Peter listed as climate change, you know, the the, um, the uh, educational system we live in, the, the debtor economy? Why is it not really presupposed in every investment? Investigation. Why is political economy and, and more precisely, the, the labor, you know, because yeah,
2: yeah, because yeah. Uh, Michael, from approximately the turn of the twentieth century, capital undertook a massive project to replace the term working class with the term middle class. Very interesting. And everybody believes if they own a two-family, and they call a family two-household right. house, that they are members of the middle class, even though the bank comes a good deal right. of that house. Right. Uh, because we have a more or less conscious ideology floating in this country that there's, that there's poverty, and then there's a the middle class, and there's no working class. Right. Poverty is a euphemism for working class. Uh, but it applies to a minority of unfortunate victims. Mm -hmm. And that's a concept which is carried out from capital directly to the foundation world, which has sponsored anti-poverty programs and finally that court with the federal government, John (laughs) F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Um, And many, many people were not only beneficiaries temporarily of the anti-poverty funds of both uh, the foundations and especially of the federal and secondarily of the local governments, the state governments. They were not only beneficiaries uh, of, of them, but they took on consciously the idea that they could, as individuals, gain social mobility because temporarily they had a passable struggling income rather than being in the dumps. Right. Now the war, the Second World War and its aftermath prolonged that illusion directly until about 1973, um, which was the beginning of a long slide which is still going on despite the pretense of Full, relatively full employment. People go to college, and it's on the television, it's on newspapers, it's on the um, on computers. People go to college to gain the credentials that will almost uh, certainly get them good, good, secure jobs. There are no more good, secure jobs, even from the CEOs all the way down to people with working class occupations or teachers mm-hmm. or professors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, remind our, uh, our friends who are listening that the latest figure is that uh, 78% of all university teachers are part-time uh, called adjunct teachers and have no... Security and many of them have PhDs, certainly almost all of them have master's degrees.
1: Non tenure track people, right. yes. one year but, but, but appointments,
2: there's no three year
1: appointments right. like yes. you have at CUNY, you know. Yes. That's right, that's a whole new mass of things. Yeah,
2: so yeah. Well, the University of California has exactly the same situation.
0: Yes, right, and right. people making somewhere between two and a half. Up to seven, eight thousand dollars a class. Right. Which, even in the best case scenario, is. Yeah. Is, uh, you you not need, exactly need six to seven of those just to survive minimally
1: in New York City.
2: And there are people with six to seven of those uh, for whom the idea of scholarship to be able to do creative historical work or creative scientific mm-hmm. work or creative uh, cultural work generally is really a a myth or actually something that's well beyond their ability to fulfill, not because of their talent, but because they are working six or seven jobs. Um, And and with six or seven jobs, you're not only teaching uh, between 18 and 21 uh, or maybe 22 or 23 hours a week, you're taking... 42 hours a week
1: home at least at least for a lot of people well, and think of the subway two, the slowing down of the subway with, with, too with, going from the Bronx back to uh, Brooklyn for a lot of people
2: I did <laughs> that yes
1: I know <laughs> yeah I know but the subway was better when you were doing it, it. was much better <laughs> right 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 so yeah that's interesting. I think you raise, I mean, a, a great point, just to go back to another point that you made. The foundations will not take on studies with labor being the underlying, in a way. They'll take on studies about poverty, why there's poverty. As you know, the war on poverty was a, you know, a, a kind of, you know, ultimately a joke, you know, um, uh, as, you know, the war on drugs was.
2: But when I started please, to work yeah, yeah. at the Graduate Center of CUNY, um, I knew that I had no choice at that moment that I started to work, 1983, but to try to raise money outside of the regular curriculum because students didn't have enough money to live on. They needed grants, and the grants came from private corporate foundations and the federal government, almost none from the city government or from the, the city. And so I had to uh, figure out what language to use to get money. And I used the language of poverty. I used the language of the poor. And I got money on that basis. Had I used the language of class and class struggle, I would have gotten Zip. Right. Except from the Yip Harburg Foundation, which has a (laughs) maximum uh, gift at that time of $5,000 a year. Mm-hmm. That was their uh that was their uh, their grant. Mm-hmm. Uh I didn't go to the Bird Foundation. I went to Corporate Foundations. One of my grants was for hundred and forty one thousand dollars. I know a colleague of mine went to the uh, money sources, he's a smart guy and raised two million dollars. <throat> Hired some of my students because I had been on his dissertation committee in California, and we were were friendly to each other, and did a study of community colleges and the opportunities that came when you had a community college degree. The study ended after three or four years with no conclusive solution. So I told him once, I said, Go for another two million dollars. <laughs>
1: right, right, right. In search of a conclusion. Good. In,
2: in search of a of a study the that would have, right. at the very least. Um, a nomenclature, that would be accurate. Right, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah he yeah.
1: looked at me and he laughed. Yeah, right, right. You right. don't do that. Yeah. We're do that. What are we doing, Stanley? We're going to go into policy studies? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's make a
0: good problem. Yeah. Yes, I know, of course. <laughs> yeah. What do you make, Stanley, of the increasing uh, of, uh, emphasis on a guaranteed income? A lot of the, yeah. the Silicon Valley people... Are very open to the idea of establishing a guaranteed income as a partial solution to
2: these
1: because labor
0: dilemmas.
2: Those
1: people. This is coming from some billionaire class people.
2: That's say, right. Recognize you know. that if you yes. do not take care of the large number of people who are sub- uh, subordinated to poor-paying jobs or unemployment, if you if you're if you're, uh, you're going to go in that direction, upsurges maybe around the corner. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. uh, The
1: return of the guillotine. That's right.
2: And uh, they're bright, but they're still not running policy. And this guaranteed income idea, in its current uh, manifestation, really began in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Richard Milhouse Nixon, a president of the United States, favored guaranteed income because he was nervous about the 60s, about the demonstrations and about the disaffection of the young.
1: And And you remember, of course, wage and price controls was actual policy.
2: That's right. And you know that uh, he proposed $1,600 per capita guaranteed income, and the movement of the poor turned it down as inadequate, and so he dropped the whole idea. He wasn't ready to go any higher. Uh, but guaranteed income itself is not a product of the left, or if it's a product no, of the no. left, it's been adopted by sectors
1: of the right. Didn't Moynihan also take it up? He
2: was, was part, he part of part this of group, group,
1: yeah.
2: Moynihan was a Democrat of the Republican stripe. Right. He was really in between. Hmm. Uh he wrote an affairs, a really an ugly book, with Nathan Glazer. <laughs>
1: Maybe you should tell the audience who Nathan Glazer is. <laughs>
2: and it was called Beyond the Welfare Space. Beyond the Welfare Space. Yeah. yeah. Nathan Glazer and I had a debate at the University of Indiana. Not the Bloomington, Indiana one, but the one in Pennsylvania. It's called Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And we had a debate on broad questions of social change. And at one point, he put his head down and he whispered to me, I've had enough. (laughs) He just died when I think lazy. And he was a very weak thinker, not compared to Daniel Bell, for example. He didn't compare to Irving Howe, who were not weak thinkers. They were basically conscious How I put
1: it? Why do you group those two together? I'm kind of curious. Uh, Bell, yeah, I mean, maybe at one time they were together. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah,
2: but in the fifties.
1: In the fifties, I see. Okay.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Bell wrote a book on Marxism Mm -hmm. in America. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have this book Mm -hmm. uh, close to my heart. It is a book which demonstrates, I think, beyond the shadow of a doubt. The quote, Joseph Cotton. Right. Um, <laughs> the third with Joseph man. Cotton. Right. What? The third man. No. No, which one? The, the earlier one with Teresa Wright. Okay. Uncle Harry. Uncle Harry. Um, okay. Uh, it was terrible. It is a terrible book. Yes. Because all he talks about is the failure of the Socialist Party. Really, not... A single word about ideas. Right. I mean, you know, the ideas were not wrong. What was wrong from the perspective of real politics, was that they did not merge with the um, two political parties earlier. Hmm. That was the only future of the left in the United States. Hmm. Marxism in the United States is the name of the book. Uh, As for Glazer, I don't think he ever had an original idea if it hit him on the side of of his head. Uh, Glazer was not an original thinker. He was a follower of Bell. Uh, He went from being in the SP um, to becoming a neocon. Um, Hmm. How, however... Became went from being a, a, a Trotskyist to being a, a Social Democrat mm-hmm. and uh, joined with his mentor, his political mentor, Michael Harrington, mm-hmm. in uh, the Democratic Socialist Organizing mm-hmm. Committee. I must say that uh, when the De- Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee merged with an organization that I was part of called the New no American Movement, Temporarily, that merging destroyed the possibility of a real left in the United States because DSOC was a left-wing democratic organization. Um, Harrington actually had dominated the 1970 uh, Democratic Party Midterm Convention. And his book, The Other America, which was about the poor, Right, became a center of U- of U.S. Right. economic po- uh, labor policy. And maybe
1: one could say the shift from labor as the underlying, but to the, the fascination with poverty or the yes. fixation more yeah. on poverty and poverty studies. And that was certainly
0: yeah. one, one of one the of inspirations for right. the war on poverty. And the yeah, it was right. on the heels of that book. Oh yeah, yeah. but he
2: also went through.
0: The classic. He was, at, right, he,
2: uh, he was actually Michael Harrington was actually a uh, consultant to the liberal wing of the Democratic Party right, and right. to the Johnson right. administration.
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then a professor at CUNY for many years.
1: One of your mentors.
0: No, I never. Oh, yeah, no,
1: <laughs> not Darren. No, I meant you. Were, you were going to add Piven to the to no, the, no, no. I'm the saying regulated the poor, for which
0: they've actually figured it out. And, <laughs> Francis you know, told little, me not right. that long ago she regrets using that as a title. The book "Regulating the Poor," yeah, okay,
2: interesting. "Regulating the Poor" is a decent book.
0: Yes, yes. Oh, it's a very good book. Yes. But but that, that focus on poor as such yes now right, in hindsight right, just right oh,
1: that's, that's have good done it it becoming more way. radical uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it happens it happens <laughs>
1: right yeah, yeah. So, so was the same way Stanley seems to be the same way too you should yes. get you know more seasoned and you become more radical
2: right <laughs> more radical than false promises no, I'm just. You know, You're not that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some ways, you. I mean, <laughs> obviously, you know, uh, we, you know, you branch.
0: Out from that well, in many well, ways.
1: I mean, you did cultural studies. It may, studies be, it may and be an illusion
0: that. because everything yeah. else has moved so far to the right. Yeah, maybe,
1: maybe it Stanley is. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, you know think. how I feel. Yeah. Seventy-three. You, Jameson, and, and Tony Wilton had the three books that kind of <laughs> closed the <a> whole chapter
2: <laughs> between
1: "False Promises," system and structure, and "Prison House of Language" and Marxism and form.
2: Right <laughs> after "False Promises," I. I uh, debated Harrington Mm -hmm. twice. Mm -hmm. Before that, we were on several panels together. But when I debated Harrington, it was very clear to me, as well as to the audience, that he was advocating the French model initiated by Francois Michaud. Oh, boy. And what was that? That was to merge the left, communists as well as uh, Social Democrats, but make sure the communists were marginalized and the, and the left-wing socialists were marginalized. Now, was his position?
1: Yeah, no, it was the end of any kind of radical politics.
2: In, well, he wasn't uh, interested in radical yeah, politics. Myth- he was interested was progressive the politics. It was the end. Yeah, by yeah, that yeah, time. yeah. And he himself had yeah. been in the Catholic Worker yeah. and in the Independent Socialist League, which was one of the two main mm-hmm. Trotskyist formations mm-hmm. of the nineteen. Yeah. 19- 40s and 50s.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mitterrand put the end of the red years, you know, the post May of 60s. Well, he
2: uh, put the, uh, yeah. the seal of death. The seal uh, of yeah. death. Yeah. The death it.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah, Absolutely.
2: But he wrote a quite interesting book called Socialism. Yes. <laughs> it was an interesting book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Of course, it outlined the alternatives and
0: the alternatives. came to its own conclusion. Right,
2: right. And you could learn stuff from
0: it right. if you didn't and know And his much book, the Twilight, bad, what? the Twilight of Capitalism, is not that either. What? The Twilight of Capitalism. Right. It's a pretty... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the first book yeah. I ever read of his, it was The Twilight of
2: Capitalism. Well, it's interesting. In 1946, yeah, the, yeah. the leader of the Communist Party of that time, William C. Foster, wrote a book called The Twilight of World Capitalism.
1: Oh, boy. Okay.
2: <laughs> and the book is not all that different from Harrington's book, with the exception of Foster's love affair with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: So, I mean, you know, we could uh, I mean, obviously go on and on about this, but maybe a little bit of um, commentary on, on the status of uh, labor today in the United States. Vis-a-vis the unions or as a force, you know, coming up? I mean, we know that most of the labor unions, the dominant labor unions, give big chunks of money to the Democratic Party. We, we know this very well. We saw what the AFT did in millions of dollars to, you know, Hillary Clinton as the teacher's union. But where do you see, I mean, are the unions themselves, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of finished as entities of of power within the system, or are they just class collaborators at
2: this point? They're not just all... class collaborators, okay. 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 but that's part of their um, okay. function. Mm-hmm. But they are also a legitimate, in the sense that they are a mainstream mm-hmm. liberal wing yep. of the Democratic Party and uh the liberals themselves, pushing the liberals as far as they could, toward a pro-worker uh, left. A pro-worker left, however, which does not foresee in the future anything different than prevailing capitalism today. Um, there are unions and individuals within them at the top right. who are different than uh, the top of the American Federation of Teachers. Um, the president of the... Um, Amalgamated Transit Union, who came out of Staten Island, hmm. is really a third party, a Labor Party advocate, um, and we still have the International Longshore and Warehouse Union in, in, in the West Coast, which organizes dock workers and mm-hmm. warehouse workers, which is a, uh, but which has been reintegrated into the AFL-CIO. Mm-hmm however, um aside from some examples like that mm-hmm. um the steel workers among them um most of the unions are uh twinkling their thumbs to obscurity perhaps to, to death self self you know selfimulation, mm-hmm. they do not take on uh, figures like um Nancy Pelosi like um, Chuck Schumer, a senator from New York, Democratic senator, they don't take on, uh, therefore, the party legislative leadership. They just make proposals and do do lobbying, not even demonstrating, lobbying for their positions. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't stand in the forefront, for example, of the $15 minimum wage movement that was started from below and the Service Employees International Union, which was very active in its foundation. But a lot of the people who really did the, the, most of the work were unorganized uh, um, uh, McDonald's and uh, Burger King workers who actually took time to strike for one day and to demonstrate. That is not a style to which the unions have remained accustomed. They are not. They are very wary of demonstrations. They have not found the virtue of occupation, even right. though um, one of the big unions, which is no longer one of the largest, but was one, the United Auto Workers, which grew to about 1.4 million members in the 60s, uh, began as a vital force in American politics right. by occupying right. uh, Fisher Body Fisher Number body. 4, which was a body shop of the General Motors mm-hmm. Company in Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. in 1937, following the rubber workers who, who did and who mm-hmm. sat, in and ac- uh, 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 sat in and struck right. in Akron, and um, following that, for example, uh, the retail and wholesale workers of which my mother was a member at one point um, had a strike at a sit-ins, called would call sit-downs then, at some retail outlets in New York um, where she participated in, and that's how come she was fired. Right. <laughs>
1: uh, I mean, given, uh, you know, the precarity of work, you know, which is obviously a term out there now, contingency, contingent labor. Do you see any possibility of a a union that would be based on contingent uh, labor that would be a movement from below? I mean, a new kind of formation that would maybe bring back a culture of labor and... The
2: the only uh, union that I see has any interest in that, forget about whether they have genuine passion Mm. about it, is the service employees.
1: SEIU. That's right, the SEIU.
2: Right. Other unions may give lip service to it. Right. And lip service is one of the great talents of the American unions. Right. Um, Right. But they put their money where their mouth is. Uh, And the Longshore Union on the West Coast has uh, responded to uh, various uh, anti-war activities during the um, um, invasion of Iraq. Right. Bush invasion of Iraq by occupying the yeah. Oakland ports,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, but they're small.
1: And also sympathy with Occupy Wall Street. Of they course. Had sympathy yes. strike. Yes, but when
2: yeah. the occupiers yeah. called upon the mm-hmm. uh, longshoremen to strike uh, to, uh, as they were occupying Wall Street. Mm-hmm. They demurred because they were worried about mm-hmm. what would happen when their contract was put into question by courts. They would mm-hmm. lose a lot of money because mm-hmm. some unions which had defied it on the East Coast right. were stuck with big penalties. Mm-hmm. Right. And they were concerned about that. Unions that are concerned about costs uh, and concerned about losing per- their organizers and their service personnel are people who will, unions that will drift rightward whether they want to or not. Um, and that's what a lot of unions did during the Cold War and beyond. You have to be willing to take risks. Absolutely. Uh, or the other word is uh, <laughs> uh, those who have nothing risk nothing if they
0: take action. Right. Well, you've often argued against contract unionism. That's right. In my
2: my latest book, which... Michael did not mention. Well, I was going to mention. I'm sorry.
0: We're going, no, but you go ahead. No, 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 please.
1: They'll talk about death and uh, life. People like uh, you should mention it. Yes, the life and death of American labor. (laughs) That's not the one. Which one? The one verse of The fall and life. Yeah, the fall and life. The life and death of American labor. The death and life of American labor. I wanted, yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted a different title, yeah, yeah. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) we
0: couldn't get it in. (laughs) I mean, when we look to the recent teacher strikes, West Virginia onwards, they were all uh, without contracts. They were
2: and without without contracts. Yes. And
0: without and were free to have illegal strikes in a sense without the union. Wasn't illegal. Well. uh, uh, yeah, they're not illegal if you don't have a contract.
1: be illegal if you break the contract, like we should do in yes. LIU, Brooklyn. But that's the... Oh, and, another, the, and there were
0: states yeah, without, yeah, without state, the... the without Act. the contract yeah. and without the state... public uh, yeah, Republican... Uh, yeah. Republican yeah.
2: Oklahoma that. and yeah. Georgia. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. exactly. Which had right to work states. Okay. Right to work states. Which means that you cannot make a contract that requires workers to join the union as a condition of employment. And those those teachers walked out, walked out mm-hmm. and won partial victories. but what, And the AFT sent down organizers to try to recruit them into the union. I don't hear of any success. Mm. It might have occurred to some of the teachers that they don't need a contract in order to be able to win a decent standard of living.
1: No, that, that thought never occurs. Never it occurs. occurs. <laughs> these days. It's ingrained. Uh, you
0: know. <laughs> yeah. Would yeah. you have suggested that path for our own union <clears throat> to go without a contract to forfeit? I, I, well, the negotiation. That's of the PSC. Well, I,
2: uh, I think the professional staff members. congress uh, has a lot of uh, older teachers. and um, and a substantial number, but a distinct minority of younger teachers. Eventually, the union might decide that it doesn't need a contract limiting its action in order to win games. Um, It can form uh, cultural associations without coming under the National Labor Relations Law uh, amended by the Taft-Harley Act. But it can't form a union, yes. with, uh, with, which, which seeks and wins contracts. Yes. It's interesting, though. Yeah. You can't break your contract. I right?
1: guess it's no accident your center was
0: called the Center for the Study of Culture, Work, and Technology. So you would not Technology. be in favor of the slogan, be used, contracts now. One of the slogans says, we want a contract now.
2: I'm not, I'm not in favor of that slogan. Yeah. I don't think they need contracts. If they had that degree of union, of union, uh, labor solidarity without a union. I mean,
1: obviously, the trend at LIU to the five-year contract destroyed the union. And this started in 2006. It's a very long process from 2006, five years, 2011, and now another one. So, in the last, going into the 13th year of five-year contracts, you know, the third end of it, it's pretty much the end of the union. Uh, because and, it, and, it gets management tremendous leverage. At CUNY, we had five year, year, yeah, yeah.
2: four and five year contracts. Right, right. Um, what happens at CUNY, if you don't get a contract within that period of time, instead of going out on strike, the uh, management agrees to, to extend the contract with no loss of benefits. And the union has bought that extension mm-hmm. several times. Mm-hmm. However, the last contract was settled with an average of 1.7% a year, or 10.5% 10, 10. over a seven-year period.
1: Right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> You possibly could get that.
1: Whoever's color you're using, that's not up to the speed. <laughs> well, it was fun five years
0: after the previous contract. Yes, yeah, so I understand that,
1: but even retroactively, and you, you put that
0: forward, you're getting slaughtered on uh, inflation. But Stanley uh, brings up that, a, a that, fundamental yeah, point, right, because right, what right. the contract provides is certainty, and what people desire, by and large, above questions of who controls the workplace, right? Uh, 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 conditions of work, and right, so forth, right. is that certainty, that guarantee. In terms of employment, in terms of right. salaries and so forth. so it is not simply the mechanics of the contract. It's also the question of, you know, for, towards what ends uh, mm-hmm. are you struggling? Are you struggling simply for yeah. somewhat better of wages course. or job guarantees? Right. Or is there a real struggle for who controls? Right the, the who institution, the I think the latter struggle has been given up completely
2: who, con- who controls right. the workplace yes. includes who yeah. controls the curriculum
1: absolutely we see uh, the curriculum uh, is now portable as a, a graduate
2: sense. Sense
0: controls
2: graduate <laughs> as a graduate, <laughs> as a graduate right. uh, school <laughs> well, professor, I could make up my own course, yes, in many of the campuses, four their campuses, right. but almost all of the community colleges. The courses are prescribed.
0: Yes. Well, that's not true. No, everyone can make designs their own. Can design their own course. The problem is many people choose not to, and they buy from Pearson's or from these other textbook publishers. Right, right. Pre-pre-made. Yeah, courses pre-made courses The textbook
1: yeah. industry is determining the curriculum.
0: That's in, right. Anyway,
1: yes, yeah. Right. That's, that's, that's how
2: it's coming up now. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: And in the lower grades. It all comes out of Texas. Whenever the Texas Board i You mean Reg- the
1: Bush family? Texas. I well, think. she was Laura Bush was very active in that. Whatever the,
2: the <laughs> Texas Board of Education agrees mm-hmm. on, the, on the texts for various grades, most school districts will emulate them. Mm. There's no compulsion to do so, but the only compulsion is that since they're all based on textbooks, they would have to have a textbook manufacturer or or producer Mm -hmm. who would cover a wide range of those uh, school districts and defy Texas. It's hard to defy Texas at any level, or Georgia. That's true. Especially Texas. Yeah. Right, right. But we may see a difference in Georgia. Uh, okay. the, the the last election of of twenty eighteen yeah uh, was a really hotly contested election.
1: Yes, and in t- Atlanta is you know as you know quote a, right. a, a left liberal black bourgeoisie. Right. You know um, you know
2: and twenty twenty there's a chance that a senator with much more progressive credentials who is mm-hmm. black. Mm-hmm might win the general election Mm -hmm. so things might be changing and it might be the case that the south will lead the north in progress once again,
1: <laughs> I'm just peaceful. What you say? I'm, I was just playing on the South, she'll lead the North. I said, once again, you know, That's in right. a way. The, glo- <laughs> the global did, South. Yeah. The global South is certainly, you know, producing for the, uh, the North now. We know this. <laughs> anyways many yeah, ways, yeah.
2: But when you have a situation, Michael, <laughs> like the Saudis destroying Yemen and... Uh, Israelis destroying much of the West Bank uh, in their own interest. Uh, it raises them, and there's other places in Africa in similar situations. It raises a problem, which is, do we have a global movement or are we still stuck at the national level? We won't take direct action if it's not in our own country. You see, no real global Protest against the Israelis, and no real global protest against the Saudis.
0: Yeah. Yes, but you don't see any real protests domestically for even domestic issues. I don't. Yeah. And Stanley, one good it's example of
2: that: Oprah Winfrey doesn't
1: use all her hard and hard-earned cash to build schools in the United States. She builds them in Africa. That's a very safe bet. You know, instead of you know, as well, you say, I, for States, an organic intellectual must work in their own you know territory where they are. The United
2: know. States has the perfect right. system yeah. to yes, watch of you course, of right, right. States.
1: Affirmative action, it works.
2: <laughs> and that was Nixon's like for poverty. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that
1: was Nixon. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, Nixon's the most radical president of the last 50 years in some <laughs> things. So this is the irony of ironies, right? <laughs>
2: right. He also wants right. for the guaranteed annual income. Yes,
1: yes, exactly. Wage and price
0: controls, right? right. <laughs> Head start.
1: Head start,
0: right? Yeah. So for people who like practical advice, cause many people want some direction of activity. For prosperity, uh, Marxism.
1: That be, uh, we'll be having a nice segment will be uh, practical a will okay, cooking good, good. cooking suggestions uh, yeah shopping tips i promise to give no bad stock market tips yes. you know out
0: of this uh, what what is uh, uh what can be done today yeah, given yeah. the fact that the labor question seems to yes. be such a forgotten issue given the paucity of grassroots movements that could uh, transform that, the that situation there's two things good. one is
2: to form study groups in public schools and in public universities, by and large, about education and use the most progressive materials available to uh, discuss it. I have some books on education, one on higher education, which is called The Knowledge Factory, and is still in print. It's published by Beacon in 2000. There are things that could be added in, some that could be discarded, But it is an interesting beginning. Um, at least at higher education, and there are many books at the level of K to 12. The second thing would be a study group of people in neighborhoods, probably, or at workplaces, in the labor question, or everyday life, or the relationship between race and class. What I notice is that a lot of the conversation about race almost totally or, uh, or totally excludes conversations about class. And the class question is rarely discussed uh, with race as a key component.
1: Well, part of the problem with the class question too—it's always spoken about in gradations. It's not really spoken about as movement, as That's you right. very well articulate in your book, uh, how class works. You know, class is about movement too. It's not well,
2: only it's about, about movement.
0: Yes, right, right, yeah. yeah That's right,
2: what I stand yeah, in yeah, how class right, works,
0: right. and That's it only it, exists as only class. exists There's as no movement, static, right. Yeah. Existence. Part of the problem in
1: the United States is we know we learn early on. There are six gradations of the middle class. You know, you're lower, you're lower, lower, you're you know, middle, lower, middle, upper middle, upper. upper middle. And this has always been a problem here. This is the most, most, way most people have been conditioned to think Yeah, about class. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So. Well, if you start, in, just a suggestion, you yes. might want to discuss this further. Yes, of if course. If you start uh, with the notion that class is always in formation or in disintegration because it's based on movement, then you may have to radically revise the classical, if you will, views of class as the lower class, the working class, the middle class, and the ruling class because all of these um, former classes are either dead or in disintegration, and there are new social movements in formation, which are called social movements because nobody wants to use the word class. Right. What would you call the teachers' uh, strikes in the South? I would call them class strikes.
1: Class strikes. Of
2: and I, was, I would also say that when um, there are real occupations, demonstrations, uh, mass movements about education, food, um, everyday life, work, work, work things. Those are class. Those are class uh, uh, struggles.
1: And you, and I think you give back there uh, the more um, you know real meaning of class struggle is, is it's warfare.
2: That's right. You know, when you begin warfare. to talk
1: about occupation, that's a, that's a. That's a, a strategy, that's a, a military term, really, a term of war.
2: And then I say, if, yeah. you, re, if you recall, oh. yeah. that if you take movement as a central aspect of class, mm-hmm. when movements over time don't exist or are only sporadic, um, then um, the traditional class movements do not exist and do not deserve to be called classes. Marx and Engels, for all of their uh, dogmatic followers, <laughs> always talked about the working class movement and sure. I, I never talked about the working class never almost anyway. talked about the working class in itself,
1: right? right. Maybe with the it was never Hegelian in itself category. That's right. It it was never, never was centralized that
0: way. Exactly. The manifesto
1: is a partial conception.
2: Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, which was
0: manifesto. Of the the
2: manifesto, manifesto and the early manuscripts. Right. 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 If you read that stuff on the uh, Paris Commune of 1871, it's about movement.
1: Critique of, of the Gotha program.
2: Critique of the Gotha program, program. Yeah. As well.
1: So maybe we could uh, end our first uh, podcast here, and, and uh, we're going to be giving another one. I think we've been close to about an hour, right? Uh, yeah. Which is a good uh, good starting point. <laughs> and and uh, we'll be doing this on a regular basis, the, the three of us, sometimes have some guests, you know, sometimes it may be one or two of us, and... Uh, uh, Will um uh yeah so pick it up soon i want to thank uh, of course stanley and peter uh uh for this and to our uh, our um uh, technological support and uh, our um very generous uh, <laughs> friend here uh, josh Kalko, uh, uh, who is uh are going to be uh, recording these for us over the uh, next, uh, you know, several uh, months and uh, years to come. We hope, and uh, I want to also speak uh, that we we do have the Institute for the Radical Imaginations. We do offer courses at the People's Forum. You can go to the website, which is radicalimagination.institute dot institute, and see all the courses. You'll be able to hear the podcast. On that uh, website, as well as many of the lectures that have been, you know, videoed, audio um, uh, videoed for um, for distribution. Uh, right now, Stanley's doing a course on what does it mean to be left? Question mark. I'm doing Freud and philosophy and uh, Peter uh Uh, Brassus and myself are doing the Age of Anxiety uh, currently, and there'll be more to come. And we're also in process uh, of trying to build a, uh, as Stanley mentioned, building study groups, where we're trying to take that to another level of actually building an education institution. And the tentative name, and I think it'll probably hold for right now, is the Academy for Critical Thought, with the acronym ACT. And uh, we hope to be offering uh, both uh, a, a curriculum and, you uh, know, group of courses that are much more fuller in in uh, September of the coming year, to the September 2019. So thank you for listening, and uh, we'll we'll be back.
0: There is a war between the ones
1: who say there is a war and the ones who say that there isn't.
0: Why don't you come on back to the war? That's right, get in it. Why don't you come?